Uh, we'll be going through the tabernacle. We'll be talking about uh, all the furniture and different things. And I mean, you can spend a lot of time going through a lot of these things. But I'm going to give you kind of a, a foundational view of everything in Exodus chapter 25. We're going to start there. And I'm going to read, um, well, let's see here. Um, I'm going to read down to verse number 10, or number, verse number 9 for today, and then we will uh, get into this lesson. So verse, chapter 25, verse number 1, it says, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, he shall take my offering. And this is the offering which he shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine linen, and goat's hairs, and ram skins dyed red, and badger skins, and uh, shittim wood, oil for the, li- the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And that's talking about the priesthood. And it says in verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Let's pray. Father, just ask that you would just uh, grant uh, strength here, Lord, tonight, that I can preach this with power, with your power, Lord, not my flesh. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would give understanding. And Lord, I pray that by the time we're done, we'd know uh, some important things about the tabernacle that'll help us. Uh, Lord, we want our Christian lives to be rich. We want them to be knowledgeable. We want to grow in your knowledge. And I pray you'd help us understand a little bit more about you tonight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last message I I preached on was way up in chapter 32. And uh, but you got to remember here in chapter 32 when Moses came down off the mount with the tablets in his hand and broke them, uh, caught the people in their apostasy uh, basically in chapter 25, what we're learning is, is what Moses actually was taught by God on that mountain. And so when God called him up to give him those tablets of stone, uh, he also gave, them the instru- gave him the instruction for the tabernacle. And so that's important because he knew that at the beginning he had presented them with the law. And remember, it was already written in a book. It was already they had the blood sprinkled and so forth. Uh, you know, the Lord knows that that's not the way that he's going to get close to his people by giving them the law. And so he provided a way for himself to get close to them. And that's what this is all about with the tabernacle. So it's not just about behavior and trying to control what you do. Uh, he was giving them an example of holiness, of course, and what, what true justice and righteousness looks like. But he knew that in itself isn't going to bring him close to them. And so that's why he had to institute the tabernacle. And so this is a wonderful thing that we're going to learn about here today. I'm going to just read my opening paragraph. When dealing with typology, the tabernacle must be declared the most intricate and greatest of all types in the scriptures. In fact, in the Old Testament, this is the major type of Christ in the Bible. Uh, Types are shadows. If there is a shadow, there is a substance casting it by the light of the word of God. And so all these things in the tabernacle, they're simply shadows. They're not going to save anybody. 
but what they're doing is pointing to salvation, and that salvation is in Christ, all right? And so uh, this, this is an earthly thing that God is typifying heavenly things with, and that's what we need to understand when it comes to Lord and, and, and typology in the Old Testament. So number one, we want to look at the purpose of the tabernacle. It's very simple. This is basically the key verse to the whole Bible, that I may dwell among them, <laughs> that I may dwell among them. So basically everything you see in the scripture, all that God did, all he instituted, every sacrifice, every typology, everything he required of people was all about him dwelling with the people. That's all it was about. Amen. At the end of this age, you know what the big climax is going to be? God dwelling with his people. So you look at the beginning of the Bible in the garden, then you look at the end of the Bible when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and finally that separation of sin has been removed. And that's really what the whole Bible is about, dealing with that stinking sin and God making a way for that. So people that say that God is not just and righteous and good uh, are just simply fools because the whole Bible was written because God is good. He wouldn't have to, written, he wouldn't have to given us one word after we fell in that garden. He could have left us to die and go to the lake of fire, but he didn't. He gave us his word. He gave us a way. Amen. And right off the bat, he even tried to raise up a nation to accentuate that word so that everybody could hear and be saved. All right. And so the purpose is that I may dwell among them. The word dwell simply means to settle down, to live with. So God wants to live with you. All right. And I know he already is in many ways because uh, we are born again, which means the Holy Spirit of God is living in us. And so it's quite special what you have right now, even compared to the Old Testament, because they didn't have that. Uh, we do have that, and the only way we could get that is because Jesus Christ came himself and presented his blood on our behalf. And that's what sprinkled the way, that's what cleansed the inner tabernacle, that he could dwell within us, all right? But yet, we're still only getting a part. We're not all there yet, amen? It's going to be quite different when we actually dwell with him physically, mentally, uh, emotionally, spiritually. Right now, spiritually, you're with them, but many times not emotionally and not mentally, and of course, not physically, <laughs> amen? And so these things all have to catch up in our salvation. But anyways, number two, the, the provision for the tabernacle, uh, verse one and two, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, speak unto the children of Israel, that they may bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, he shall take my offering. So willingly simply means voluntary desire of the heart to give of oneself or of one's resources to the service of the Lord. That's what God wants to see. Now I understand there's the tithe. You know, I got to give the tithe. Well, that's not what he wants from you. He doesn't, he doesn't want you to say, I got to. <laughs> he wants you to say, I want to. I want to give. I trust you, God. It's a statement of your trust in the Lord. Amen. And uh, a lot of people today, they debate the tithe, whether it ought to be in the church and so forth and different things like that. But folks, those are people that really don't care about the church actually, actually succeeding. Amen. They're, they're okay with not coming to church every once in a while. They're okay with not being a part of all the programs. But I'll tell you, if you get yourself involved in the local assembly, you'll realize how important it is for each member of the church to take seriously this thing about tithing. The reason why churches today don't have buildings, the reason why they don't, can't pay their pastors and they can't take care of their needs is that people don't tithe. They don't give 10%. They got this idea, I'll give when I feel like it. 
And I'm sorry, you're going to find out one day that's wrong because not only because of a law-based thing, but it's because you fail to see what God is doing and you fail to care. You fail to care. I mean, I care, you know. Like I, when, when we tithe, it has to be something. I care about the church having enough. I care about us being able to pay the bills. I care about us going forward, amen? It ought never just be a have to. It's got to be a willingness of the heart, a voluntary desire of the heart to give of oneself or one's resources to the service of the Lord. And that's what the Lord was looking for with the people of God. So letter A is this. This is very interesting. The Lord promised substance. So this is it. So it's not just, hey, do I have to give what I have? Well, number one, what you have is what the Lord gave you. <laughs> Amen. In Exodus 3, verse 20, remember this? When they left Egypt, it says, And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof, and after that he will let you go. And then it says, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty. And we know what happened as they were leaving the Egyptians, for whatever reason, because God touched them, threw at them all these things, gold and silver and jewels and fabric, and, and they were just loading up Israel as they were leaving Egypt. You wonder why did they do that? Well, because God said they would. <laughs> and he says that he would give this people, Israel, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. That means that he adjusted their heart by his grace so that they would give towards the people. That's quite interesting, especially after they've really just been the cause of the firstborn dying, all their cattle dying, all, you know, the sun going dark. I mean, you name it. If Israel wouldn't have been there, it wouldn't have happened. But yet God somehow took all of that and turned it around. And the world, and you got to look at this, as the world provides. You know, folks, what you're getting is the world providing you by God's grace what you have. And that's a picture we have here. Now, the Lord promised that substance. And, and letter B, the Lord provided that substance. And in Exodus 12, verse 36, and this is when they left, it says, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required. And they spoiled the Egyptians. Spoiled. Spoiled means to take everything that's valuable out of them. <laughs> Amen. So when they would go and spoil a village, they would take everything of value and leave all the garbage. And so the Bible says by God's grace that he provided these things that they required where it actually was that they spoiled Egypt at the same time. And yet it wasn't because they were doing anything untoward or wrong. It was simply just God. And that's why Philippians 4.19 says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Isn't it sometimes how you feel the world has so much and how am I ever going to compete or how am I ever going to make it? Well, the fact of the matter is the Lord will provide for you in a way where he will spoil the world for you. He will cause them to go broke for you. He's got no problem doing that. He'll see the world fail so that you succeed. <laughs> Amen. And so we need to keep this in our mind that the Lord provided. But let her see, you got to remember this as well, that Israel prodigalized their substance. This is very interesting because what happened in Exodus 32? Here God's giving the command to Moses to ask all the people of, to give willingly from their heart of all the abundance that they have. 
And at the same time, what are they doing down at the bottom of the mountain? And when people saw that Moses delayed to come down to the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto him, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. I'll tell you this much. I don't think while they were in slavery, they were walking around with golden earrings. Where to get the golden earrings? That was a part of the spoil. That was a part of what God provided to the people for what they required. Now, was this something they required? Was this on God's mind? He says, oh, I want you to have this gold so that when you want to make that golden calf that you'd have enough gold well no they were taking that which god designated for something else and they prodigalized it and they used it for the the golden calf instead so folks we got to learn from this this could be very practical the lord gives us things and he wants us to be able to pay our bills and go on vacations and all these things that we need and buy a car and whatever you need to do to, to get around amen but you got to be careful with the things that you have that you don't prodigalize them and use them in a way that dishonors the Lord. So every time you pay for that going to that place, you know the Lord would, not glorif- would be glorified in. You are prodigalizing his spoil from the world. Amen? So we just got to make sure that we're, what we're doing is righteous and it's good and we're not wasting on things that, that ought not be wasted on, our, on our little golden calves that are just ours. Amen. Nobody knows about them. Be very, very careful. And so, um, you see that example, Luke 15, verse 13, not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, there wasted his substance with riotous living. So there was a part of his problem was he lost his whole desire to glorify God. And so he took everything that he had, instead of putting it towards something that was righteous and good, he began using it for his own selfish lusts and desires, for riotous living. Now, the Lord wasn't for that, but it sure, showed, it sure exposed the heart of the prodigal son. You know, he had no concern anymore for the things of God. And that's why immediately, folks, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, giving to the Lord... It's probably one of the last things that people do when they're right with God. That's been my experience. You know, it's the last thing that people get right. I mean, I'll become faithfully to church. You know, I've, had people, I've heard people arguing before. Oh, I don't know about that tithing. I'm standing right there and saying, okay, you know, I'm hearing you, right? Basically, you just told me you're not obedient. <laughs> you know, so I got a message for you. <laughs> but you know, folks... That, if we can't get to that point, there is something that is keeping us from truly trusting God with our life. And many times it is, just like with the prodigal son, it's some kind of a sin or desire of the flesh that we are not willing to part with because we need that substance for ourselves. We're not willing to gamble that I'm going to use this and not have enough for what I want when the time comes, Right? And that's where the Lord tests us with the tithe. And folks, the tithe is not the ninth or the eighth or even the ninth point five 
or even a 9.9. It is a 10. And so I always make sure when I tithe, it's not just 9.9 or it's even 10. I say, let's just bump it a little over in case my math is wrong, you know. <laughs> it can happen. <laughs> Get yourself a calculator, you know. But you know something, I'd hate to go to the end of my life with everything you've given to the Lord and realize I've not tithed one time. Wouldn't that be something? I don't want that to be my story at the end. But folks, I understand there's growth. And so you can't go up to a new Christian and expect them to understand this. They've been spending their money and their things on their own desires since day one. And now you're telling them to trust God. That's something I cannot make somebody do. That's, a, that's an act of your own faith. That's your trust. And it's going to be worse when you don't have enough to pay your bills. And then you tithe. Then you test yourself. You say, okay, well, the Lord wouldn't expect me to, to you know, starve. Well, he said, I will give you your daily bread. So you, you honor him with the first fruit of your substance, and you allow the Lord to take care of the daily needs. And that's, that, my friend, it, it's not such a common thing today that people live that way. They don't live that way. They live, they live for themselves, and then they go to church. And they don't trust God, you know, with your substance, with the, the first fruits. And I think it's just very important that you at least you begin to talk to God about that. And now if your conviction, if you got yourself convinced, I don't believe in tithing, I don't think it's right, well, I hope you never pastor a church because you'll probably go out of a job real quick. See, but the fact of the matter is, you will meet God with that philosophy. Now, I just want to just do what the Bible says, as hard as it may seem. You know, sure, I could use that money every couple of weeks. I could find a place for it. <laughs> you know, I could go do something. There's a stake calling my name somewhere, you know. But, you know, it's not worth it. I would rather be faithful to God and be poor as Job's turkey than have money in the bank and stealing from God. I really would. Amen. The Bible says in Philippians 3.8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. There, my friend, is a Christian attitude, which is very rare in these days that we live in. All things but dung, everything. Paul said everything. There's nothing I'm holding on to family line, where I've come from, uh, anything, friendships, position, job, money, uh, how people perceive me, my reputation. It's all dumb. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, that's someone that the devil couldn't get something on, you know, because he really didn't care, you know. It's good. Letter D, Israel purposed their substance. In Exodus 25, verse 2, it says, Speak unto the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. Ye shall take my offering. And so they purpose that substance towards the Lord. And so that has to be an act of your heart. You know, nobody can do that for you. Nobody's going to twist your arm and guilt you into it. It ought not be a guilt thing. It ought to be a love thing, first off. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Every man according as he purposeth, in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, but God loveth a cheerful giver. 
Amen. Like, you know, you can't, we, we cannot be squeezing that penny till we drop it in the offering plate. You know, just dreading that we have to drop. Folks, that is not pleasing God. We've got to get this purposed in our heart that we want to do something for God and we trust Him with the rest. Amen? And it is tough because you do run out of money at the end of the month. You do. But you know what? You just got to remember you're still here. Your head's still above water. And you may owe bills, but guess what? I'll guarantee you this, you're not going to pay those bills by stealing from God. It's not going to happen. You're not going to become rich by taking God's portion. In fact, you'll do far more with giving God his portion with a little he gives left. But for us to say, I can do more with God's than he can, <laughs> folks, is, our, our, I mean, do we believe the Bible? <laughs> like, is Jesus real? <laughs> Amen. That's something we ought, to, we ought to think about. So they purpose their substance. One of those things is gold. Gold is a precious, valuable metal. It was the metal used to cover all the furniture inside the tabernacle. Gold represents the deity of Christ, the deity of Christ. So it represents divine. So you look at the tabernacle, the outside you don't see any gold, but when you go in, that's where you see all the gold. And that's where, what Jesus Christ was. Uh, you, outside, you couldn't see the divinity other than his works. But inside, he is a fullness of God, the fullness of Godhead bodily. The Bible says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. You know, the thing is, he's talking about this church here that ended up being a very, uh, well, a lukewarm uh, church that didn't really do anything for God. It, it was really like a tribulation church. They, Jesus wasn't even allowed in the building anymore. They had money. They were known for their medicine, especially their eye medicine. And the Lord says, guess what? Buy of me gold tried in fire. And he says, that thou mayest be rich. They had fashion. They had clothes. He says, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Well, none of them were naked. They were all dressed in very fine clothes. But he wasn't talking about their outside. He was talking about their inside. He says, you're naked on the inside. You're not covered with the righteousness of Christ. And so, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see, not just physical eyes, but spiritual eyes. You know, they, they couldn't see the truth. And I know it, it, it's a journey for Christians. And, and if we're living in carnality, it's going to take us a long time to see. You know, but the more you give yourself to Scripture, the more you give yourself to be faithful to God, your eyes will become opened, and He will apply that eye salve to your eyes and you'll begin to see. Amen? But you got to make this, you got to do what he's asked you to do. you got to move forward for him. So Colossians 2, 3, it says, And whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, talking about Christ. In Colossians 2, 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So it's interesting with the typology of Christ in the tabernacle, it's also uh, typifying the body of believers. We're also tied into this because we are the body of Christ. And so you can find an application in all these things for us. Whether any furniture you find in the tabernacle, it somehow applies to me too. But it first applies primary to Christ. Amen? And then because he, he's the one and he's in me, now that applies to me as well in some way, in some practical way. And so number two, silver. Silver was currency for commerce. 
It was silver that was given to Judas to betray Christ. It pictures the cost of redemption. So when you have silver mentioned as we go through the tabernacle, that silver is going to always talk to you about cost, about paying a price. Gold is always talking about divinity. It's always talking about that, 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 that part of God that's within us, that's in Christ, that uh, is, is so valuable. In Matthew 26, 15, it says, And said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. Proverbs 22, 1 says this, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Boy, see, Judas had that proverb. He read that. He knew that. And yet he sold his name. Who, who names her kid Judas? His, he sold out his name. He sold out his good name. And now it's a bad name for silver. And we do the same thing, you know, in the eyes of the Lord. And so number three is brass. Brass is an alloy made up of copper and tin. Brass is used in harsh environments because of its resistance to corrosion. Brass is associated with judgment because of its ability to endure high temperatures. And so when there's brass involved, there's always judgment involved. And so you'll see that in the different furniture. It's always picturing judgment, even Christ. I don't know if I have that here. Yes, I do, right there. And Revelation 1.15. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is a sound of many waters. So he stands in judgment. He's the king. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen. Revelation 2.18. Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who's, who hath his eyes like a, a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Hebrews 12.2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The judgment. See, brass could endure the heat. Jesus endured the heat. The, the, folks, Job endured heat. You know, I think there was a temperature gauge with Job, and the Lord knew where it was, and it was just kind of way up there. He could lose everything. And the Lord knew everything except his life itself. He says, I can turn up that furnace right till that point, and he will still not curse me. With other people in the scripture, he can say, I can turn it up this far. With you, he can turn it up that far. With me, who knows, maybe that far, <laughs> you know. But with Jesus, it was buried. Everything, even his life. Isn't it amazing that, that Job he would not let him take his life. He, he kept him underneath Christ. But when Christ came, that, that gauge went up. It even took his very life. Even the condemnation, the separation from the Father, which no man has to experience uh, on this side of heaven. Amen? Number four, linen. Uh, fine linen. Do you folks need a worksheet back there? I know you walked in a little bit. Do you have one? Maybe Levi, make sure you get them one of those there. Good to see you, by the way. <laughs> linen. Fine linen was fabric that was intricately woven with many threads to make one strand. And so this wasn't just a regular fabric. It was very intricate. 
when it's talking about fine linen, you know. These days it would be probably your expensive linen that you would buy. So Revelation 19, 8 says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So what does fine linen represent? Righteousness in the Bible. Very fine. Revelation 9, 19, 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed, followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Amen. That righteousness of the saints, that's not their own righteousness. That's the righteousness imputed to them. They were given it by Christ, and that's why it's fine linen. And so when you see in the tabernacle fine linen, it's talking about the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, now we're going to look at some colors in relation to the fabrics. It says, uh, or letter A, blue is the color of the sky, and therefore it is given to remind us of Christ's heavenly origin. So blue pictures him as a son of God, pictures him from heaven, his deity in heaven. Uh, letter B, purple is the color of royalty and therefore typifies Christ as king of kings. It is interesting to note that blue combined with red will produce purple. Amen? So once you apply the blood to the blue, <laughs> then you get the purple. So once you get the, he the Son of God coming down from heaven to give his life for mankind and shedding his blood, the combination equals kingship. Amen? Um, letter C, scarlet is a dark red color picture, picturing the blood of Christ, which was shed as an atonement for our sin. And letter D, fine linen, pure white linen, picturing Christ in his perfection. And number five, goat's hair. Uh, what, well, what's so great about goat's hair? <laughs> Amen. The Palestinian goats were black, not white, they were black. Song of Solomon 1.5, it says, I am black, but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. So think about this. The tents of Israel were made out of goat's hair. What color were they? Black. So you think about the tents and where God set them around the tabernacle when this is all said and done. What's the first thing you see when you look towards a tabernacle? You see a white fence. So look at the contrast from the black to the white. Amen. And that's what God wanted them to see. You're a sinner. I am not. <laughs> Amen. But I've provided you a way to come in. All right. The goat was sacrificed for the sin offering. Leviticus 9.3 And unto the children of Israel thou shalt speak, saying, Take ye a kid of the goats for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year without blemish, for a burnt offering. So this black covering over the tabernacle pictured how Jesus came to take our sin upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he's applying that black goat hair to his own tabernacle, to himself. And so that's him taking his, our sin upon himself. Isaiah 53.6, This is all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Number six is ram skin dyed red. The skin of the first sacrifice animal was used to cover Adam and Eve in their nakedness. It says in Genesis 3.21, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins 
and clothed them. And so this is interesting how that the first death was made to cover. It was made to cover nakedness. Now we're talking physical nakedness, but it was more than that when we're talking the spiritual truth. We're talking about that spiritual nakedness, that inner sin. And so Jesus Christ had to die for our inner sin. But it was pictured through all these different types in the Old Testament. A ram was provided on Mount Moriah by God as a substitute for the death of Isaac. You see that in Genesis 22, verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. So the skins were dyed red, picturing the blood that would be provided through Christ's atonement as payment for sin. See, folks, there's some people out there, they don't like talking about the blood of Jesus. There's some churches, they don't mention it anymore. You don't want to talk about blood. They take the hymns out of the hymn book. That we're not going to talk about power in the blood. We're not going to, uh, you know, sing those songs anymore. That's just too gross. Well, no, they've been watching too many horror movies. They've they got to get their head out of this world and they'd start seeing what blood really is because the Bible says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Amen? So when Jesus gave his blood, he gave his life. That's what it was all about. In Hebrews 9.22 and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So, no breaking of the law can be remitted unless there's shedding of blood. And that's what it says in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. So without the blood, so if there's a religion out there that does not make much of the blood of Jesus or does not think that it's necessary or uh, maybe they think it's a fairy tale, I don't know. <laughs> All I know is they're going to die in their sins. Because without that shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Romans 5.8, But God commended His love toward us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Leviticus 8.22, And He brought the other ram, the ram of consecration, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of that ram. And that's the confession of sin. So when they laid their hands, that word actually means to lean upon. So when you're leaning on that ram, what they're doing is they're trusting that their sin is being removed. Their confession is removing their sin through the shedding of that ram when they would, when they would kill it after that confession. And so, number seven, badger skins. I don't know if you can read these. I should have made the letters bigger. <laughs> so anyways, you got it in your book or in your book <laughs> worksheet. It's not a book yet. All right, badger skins. Badger skin was durable, watertight covering for the tabernacle. It represents Christ's outward appearance as being unassuming and unattractive while all the while containing the fullness of God. And so Isaiah 53, 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. There was nobody, when he walked by, he said, oh, well, that's a good-looking man. He never had one compliment. That's what it says right there. Not one person looked at Jesus and says, that's a good-looking man. Now, if you're good-looking, you've had somebody say that. <laughs> you know, If you're not good-looking, well, it's okay. We're going to heaven one day. We're going to get a glorified body. <laughs> that's what I'm aiming for. <laughs> Anyways, but Jesus, he had nobody, no compliments, because he was just simply plain on the outside. And that was that, that final layer of that badger skin, so unassuming, just a tent. Didn't look like anything great until you went on the inside. Amen. 
Philippians 2, 5 to 8 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Oh, folks, I just want to warn you there in that passage, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That means Jesus Christ did not think for one second that I am not on an equal par with God and all the other parts of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost equal in every way whatsoever. But the Bible says, but he made himself of no reputation. Now, he could have come and made a big splash. He could have had his glorified form right off the start. He could have come in, in, in through a palace, not a stable. You know, all these different things. Why did he ride into, the, into Jerusalem on the donkey? He could have come in on a white horse with an army behind him. But he made himself of no reputation. He made it that simply you would have to look at his works and the testimony of his father and the testimony of his people. And that's what he actually mentioned. He says, John the Baptist is my witness. The Father witnesses of me. And he did three times while Jesus Christ on earth. He says, this is my son, hear ye him, three times. And then he says, my works testify. See, folks, there's a thing going around right now with the Muslim community where they think that the Bible, because there's not a clear statement, and there is very clear statements if you study the Bible, but they, they think because they can't hear Jesus saying, I am God, I'm great, that somehow he isn't. Well, I would question anybody that would come and start running around saying, I am God and I am great, because they're depending on their reputation, they're building their own reputation. But you get a guy like the Lord Jesus Christ where, where there's nothing you see in him that's special. And yet through the words that he says, through the actions of his life, you look on him and say, this is not a normal man. He is far above and ultimately, they saw it right to the end. And even the, the last person, that, that, that Roman soldier, when he saw Jesus die on that cross, he even died differently. He died differently. <laughs> Forgiving the, the ones that were railing on him at first. And he forgave them. This Roman soldier looks out of him. <laughs> Surely this is a son of God. He was convinced this is no normal man. And I'll tell you, his visage and his look what is worse than at any other time in his life. He was torn open. You wouldn't even recognize his face. Yet that God still shined through. Amen? Wow, that's powerful. That's the message of the tabernacle. Amen? Let's not miss that. Now, for sure, later we'll see the temple you know, wow, it's ornate, it's beautiful, the structure, the external. But that's a picture of Jesus Christ when he's fully revealed in the revelation. That's why no temple could stand until Jesus Christ comes. He even told David, he says, why, why do I need a house? He, he made a big deal about the house. He says, well, why do I care about a house? It's never been about a house. It's been about me being with you. Yet they thought it was about a house. It was about something that God needed to be in. He says, I don't need someone. I got the heavens. Like, why do I need to sit in the little room? It's all pictures. 
you see. And the temple, and sure, God allowed that and allowed Solomon to build that temple, and it was beautiful, but it didn't take long because of the, the absence of God's leadership in their life. They blew it. And what did God do? Destroy the temple. Herod's day, what happened? Herod rebuilt the temple. Herod wasn't even truly a believer. Yet he just wanted to build a great house to his God. And what happened? AD 70, destroyed. They're going to do one more time. Tribulation. They're going to think, we're going to build God a house. And they're going to build a temple. And they're going to try to make it as great as they can. They've got everything in place. Folks, I don't care if you've got the red heifer, the blue heifer, the green heifer. It doesn't matter. That temple is going to be a rebel's temple. Jesus Christ will never step foot in that temple. That will be the Antichrist temple. And the Lord says, I'm not going to, I, I don't care about that temple. I didn't care about that one. I don't care about this one. I don't care about that one. But when he comes again and sets his foot upon this earth and is revealed, you look at that temple, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 44. Wow, it's going to be placed on top of a high mountain. It's going to be huge. <laughs> it's going to be the size of Jerusalem today. And Jesus Christ is going to sit on that throne in glory on Mount Zion. I mean, then you got something, you know, but then we understand why it's there. It's there because of Jesus. It's no longer about the temple. Now it's about who's in the temple, <laughs> amen? And that's what it's about. So the tabernacle is just God opening the eyes of the people, little by little, to the truth of what he's trying to get them to see about how he wants to dwell with them, amen? What a great truth it is, wonderful, um, Shatim Wood, this is the perfect, the picture of the perfection of Christ's humanity. And we know that wood is not a durable substance. And so wood is always a picture of the humanity of Christ. So even in the furniture, inside there's only one piece of furniture that it does not have wood in it, and that's the candlestick. All the rest of them have a, have a wood base to them, covered in gold. Amen? So this, this uh, wood... It grew under the severe and adverse conditions of the desert. The natural elements would not be able to wear down this type of wood. This wood was a hard, durable, close-grained wood. It was heavy and indestructible to insects. It means incorruptible wood. That's what the word means. It's incorruptible wood. So you think about Jesus Christ. Interesting when you think about this. There's so much I don't know and I'd like to know. But when you think about Jesus, I don't think that any natural thing would have ever taken his life. I think he was incorruptible. See, that makes it much more powerful when he gave his life. You know, you and I, we have no choice. Something's going to take us out, <laughs> you know. And if we don't give our life, we're, somebody's going to take it some way. But with Jesus, it was one specific way, you know. But an incorruptible humanity. He had no sin in him whatsoever, even in his body. He was perfect in every way, you know. Number nine, oil. Olive oil was used for food, for anointing, and for light. In Exodus 27, 20, it says, And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure olive oil, beaten for the light, to cause the lamp to burn always. And so that candlestick inside the tabernacle was supposed to be lit all the time. And yet we saw there was a time where the lamps went out. You remember the time of Eli? The lamp went out. <laughs> I 
And that was very indicative of what was going on in the spiritual life of Israel at that time. They thought they could beat the Philistines, so they took the, the ark with them. And yet all that happened was the enemy stole the ark. The presence of God wasn't there, you see, because they were not obeying. They were not following the Lord's commands. The, the, the priests were heathen. I mean, the sons of Eli, uh, they, they would take bribes and so forth, and they were just playing the game. They weren't true servants of God. And Eli would not stand for the truth. He put family before God. And he honored his sons before he honored the Lord. And that's what ultimately, when he died, he fell backward and broke his neck when he heard that his sons were killed and the ark was taken. Oil in the scriptures is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Samuel 16, 3, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So oil is always a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, Luke 4, 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. And that's really the picture when Jesus Christ was baptized, how the Holy Ghost came down upon him in the form of a dove. That was just a symbol of the fact of Christ being empowered for his anointed purpose. And that's why he went and he did these things. He went and preached the gospel. But he can't do that without the Holy Spirit of God. Neither can you. You know, you have to be full of the Spirit to be a witness of the Lord. You have to. You can't be living like the devil, you know. You've got to love him and you've got to give yourself to him so that God can use you in the simplest way. And, and you're not the smartest person on the earth and you're not the, most, the greatest orator on the planet. It doesn't matter because you just do what God's asked you to do and his power will make up all the difference in all your deficiencies. Amen. Olive oil was produced from beating the olives, picturing how the spirit is given to us as a result of Christ's sacrifice for us. I think I've shown you this. I should have put it on there. I do have a picture of the, the olive press in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what they did is they, they would press it three times. And each time, they would, you would get a different degree of oil out of it. The last time, you get the finest oil. And so they'd always keep three different quality of oils, and they were all from the three different presses of that oil. And when Jesus was in the garden, how many times did he, was he pressed where he sweat drops as were blood? Amen. That final one. It's the finest oil, amen, Then Jesus went to the cross that night. And so, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Let's see, how much time do I have here? Anyways, uh, number 10, spices. There were four spices used. These fragrances represented aspects of Christ's ministry in the world. Myrrh, sweet cinnamon, Sweet calamus and cassia, each one of these were blended perfectly together and added to the anointing oil. These picture the grace of God exhibited through the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit also exuded certain fragrances to the world. Same with you. If you're filled with the Spirit, it's not just one thing you're doing. It's, oh, you're a good witness. <laughs> no, it affects the way you love. It affects your joy. It affects your peace. It affects your temperance. You got an anger problem, it's a sign that you don't, you're not filled with the Spirit. Because you'll, be, you, you'll have temperance in your life. You, you'll be able to take a bending. Temperance is where you temper a piece of metal to take pressure. 
So if you temper, uh, tempering a hammer and tempering a bridge are two different things. Bridge girders have to be tempered to, to, to bend. So if you drive on them, you can see them bend and they keep driving. And that's called being tempered. A hammer is tempered to be solid. You see, and you, so there's got to be times where you hit hard. There's got to be times where you learn to bend and take the hit and spring back again. Amen. And that's also a, an aspect of the Holy Spirit of God. And so 11, sweet incense. The incense pictures prayer. As the incense was lit, it would fill the tabernacle and give off the sweet odor. The ingredients for the incense pictured aspects of Christ's life and sacrifice as well. Only Christ is pleasing to God. The incense would be lit using the fire from the brazen altar, which was a type of the cross of Calvary. And so we're going to look at that altar of incense inside the tabernacle later. I'm just giving you some of these... Um, these elements, so as we're going through there, you can kind of pick apart, oh, that's talking about gold, that's silver, that's brass, so now you know we're dealing with judgment, we're dealing with divinity or whatever, you know, and I just want you to kind of get ahead of the game here with this. At number, thir- number three, the pattern of the tabernacle it says, let's see, what do I have left? I don't want to keep you. Uh, basically, it says in Exodus 25, 9, it says, According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. So basically, God is setting the pattern. Moses didn't set the pattern. Israel didn't set the pattern. You and I don't set the pattern. We're not the ones that were told to figure it out. God says, I will tell you what I want you to do. You just simply do it. <laughs> Amen. That's all it's about. If Moses would have messed with the pattern... What would have happened if you would have seen the inside of that tabernacle and the way the, the placement of the, of the uh, furniture, it was a perfect picture of the cross. Moses didn't know about the cross. I mean, this is something thousands of years in the future. But you think if Moses would have said, oh, I don't like that lamp over there. I'm going to move the lamp over here. All right, let's move that over there. I think it's just a better place for it. You've got to stop controlling the pattern and let God give you the pattern for your life. Because if you're not going to have the pattern right, then what's going to happen is they're not going to see the right picture from your life. It makes sense to you because you're judging according to what you want to do, <laughs> you know, and your lusts, your desires. But sometimes you just got to do things just because God says it, even if it doesn't make sense to you. Because it's going to be the greatest exemplification of who Jesus Christ is to others. And so he said it once again in verse 40, look, at, look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. So it's a heavenly pattern. It's not something you guys created down there. And Exodus uh, 26, verse 30, And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. So pattern is a structure, a model, a resemblance, a figure, a likeness. Uh, that's what we're aiming at here, all right? And so, I'll give you these blanks. Letter A, the pattern of the earthly, earthly revealed the heavenly. So that's something we need to understand right off the bat. This didn't start on earth. God always starts in heaven and works down to man. And so what we're really doing is where he's trying to illustrate to you what he sees clearly in heaven. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, it says, let, let thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But many times we pray, Lord, let, thy, let, let my will be done on earth or in heaven as, thy, you know, as on earth. So we're wanting God to give us what we want. When really our prayer should be, Lord, I want your will to be exampled here on earth through my life. 
It's got to start in heaven first. And so the spiritual first, the carnal is the example or the, the expression of the spiritual. In Hebrews 9.24, it says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So when he went to present his blood, he didn't go look for the temple. He went up to glory. That's why even when they saw him on the day of the resurrection, he says, touch me not, for I have not yet ascended unto my father. But then a little bit time down the road, they met him again, and they touched his feet, and, they, and he let them. So what happened between then and then? <laughs> well, he ascended. He led captivity captive, and that's why paradise had to be kept in Sheol for a while, had to be kept in the center of the earth in paradise. That's why uh, Abraham and, and the uh, rich man could have a, uh, a conversation. There was two localities in the same place in the earth because Jesus Christ had not yet presented his blood in the heavenlies. Lots of lamb's blood, lots of ram's blood, lots of ox blood, lots of goat's blood on earth, but none of that opened up the way to heaven. So he said that these were just figures of the true. They're just figures. They're just shadows of the true. But he went into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. That's what it's about. Let her be the pattern of the tabernacle reveal the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and here, I don't think I have any blanks, do I? Are there any blanks after this? You're clear, aren't you? So I don't want to take a lot of your time here, but what we have here is just different things, how that tabernacle revealed the person of Christ. And you could read this on your own as well, but it was a place of meeting for God and man. The Bible says there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So this tabernacle was the mediator place where man would meet God, and that's a picture of Christ. The tent was portable, just as Christ lived no, with no permanent dwelling. He said, the foxes have holes, the birds have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. Amen. So that's a picture of the tabernacle. Uh, the law was preserved within the tabernacle, as Christ has perfectly fulfilled the law. I delight to do thy will, O oh my God, yea, thy laws within my heart. That's, a, that's actually messianic. Jesus said that. Amen. I delight. Anything you want, Father, I'm going to do. Amen. And so that law was at the center of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the priest would serve and feed in the tabernacle, picturing us as believers getting our sustenance from being in Christ. Amen. So they would go inside, inside of Christ. And we would get our bread. We'd get our light. We'd get our prayers answered. Amen. Perfect. Uh, the tabernacle was approached through the tribe of Judah. He was on the east side. The doorway was always on the east. Judah was always on the east. And on the east side, toward the rising of the sun, shall they of the standard of the camp of Judah pitch throughout their armies. Because Jesus Christ is of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5, 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Number six, the tabernacle, Christ's first coming, provides a contrast to the temple, Christ's second coming. Amen. When he comes again, he's having a solid presence. <laughs> Amen. 
The tabernacle was first historically. The temple was not built until long afterwards. Letter B, the tabernacle was temporary. The temple was a permanent, or it was designed to be a permanent structure, but because of our sin, of course. The tabernacle was built by Moses, a prophet, an office filled at the first advent by Christ. The temple was built by Solomon, a king, an office to be filled at Christ's second advent. Tabernacle was built in the wilderness, Christ's humanity. Temple was built in Jerusalem, Christ's future glorification. The tabernacle was unattractive in his externals, while the temple was renowned for his external magnificence. Number four, the progression in the temple. I just really wanted you to see this. When God came to man and he started to instruct Moses about the tabernacle, what is the first piece of furniture he started with? The Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. What does that mean? He started from the inside of the Holy of Holies and worked out towards the people. See, in that he wanted people to see that this plan of redemption is about me coming for you. He didn't start with them coming to him. He says, I'm coming to seek and to save that which is lost. Amen. So he starts also not only that, when you look at a type of the tabernacle, even being the heart of man, he starts in the heart and he works outward.